Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Now, it's my great thrill to introduce... It's always a great thrill, you know. I really enjoy the guests that come on to 3RRR, but today it's uh, Professor James Chin. And uh, if you've been watching the news from Malaysia over the past week, you'll know there's been a shift in power in that country. Uh, Prime Minister or, uh, Mahathir Mohamed, or I should say former Prime Minister, uh, who led a coalition that historically defeated the ruling party in May 2018, has been replaced and uh, by Muhyiddin Yassin. And last week in Malaysia, people took to the streets to protest. So I've invited Professor Chin to join us this morning to explain more about it. He's the director of the Asia Institute at the University of Tasmania and an expert on governance issues in Southeast Asia, especially Malaysia, Indonesia and Singapore. Welcome to 3RRR, Professor Chin. Good morning. Yes, and you're not sleeping in late, that's for sure. <laughs> you're up and ready to speak to us this morning. But uh, look, I'd just like to go back a bit because uh, I believe you were in Malaysia during the election in 2018. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So what happened in 2018 was that for the very first time, a regime change occurred in Malaysia after 60 years of a single party rule. So that was truly historic, and I think a lot of people had a lot of high expectations that things would change in Malaysia. And last week, when the government reverted back to the old government, I think there's a lot of uh, unhappiness in Malaysia, a sense of unease. And I think some of the people in Malaysia really regretted that there was a change in government in 2018. Really? So a lot of pe- not everyone was happy back in 2018? That's right. Well, I think the whole country was happy in 2018, but there's always been a small minority who felt that 2018 was a mistake because what happened in 2018 was you had a genuine multiracial government came into power. Uh, previously, before 2018, for almost 60 years, uh, that government was very much a Malay-centric government or dominated by the majority Malays. So people thought that Malaysia was slowly moving away from a single-race government and towards a more multiracial government. And so that's what was happened. a lot of people were optimistic about back then in 2018. And the mood, that's is, and the mood is very different now. I mean, what happened uh, to, to create this change? I think in your paper you said that Mahathir made two fatal mistakes. Yes. So the first fatal mistake he made was that he resigned from his job suddenly, uh, he shouldn't have done that because if he had not resigned, it means there would not have been a vacancy for the prime ministership. And I think the second big mistake he made was, of course, he thought that uh, the king would renominate him to be the prime minister. But the king, in fact, selected somebody else. And that somebody else was the person you named, Muyadin Yassin. And what, what's his background? I mean, where does he sit in the politics of Malaysia? Right. Uh, generally, if you speak to people in Malaysia, they will tell you that he's sort of a Malay first politician. He's quite Malay-centric. So I expect going forward, this government will uh, be very similar to the government that was replaced in 2018. So in some ways, we're going back to the future. We're actually heading back to what Malaysia was before 2018. So I expect him to put together a coalition making up mostly of Malay-centric parties. And the sort of policies that we can expect going forward will be policies that will focus on the Malay population and probably policies that will be much more Islamic. Now, my memory, just going back to the party that was toppled in 2018, there was a high level of corruption that uh, people were concerned about. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in 2018, the prime minister that replaced is an infamous person by the name of Najib Razak. He is alleged to be involved in a scam that is probably uh, in the region of four and a half billion US dollars. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting uh, things about that scam was that his wife spent almost a billion dollars on things like expensive handbags and designer stuff, including uh, spending 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars at a famous boutique in Sydney, Australia. Well, right here, right here in yeah. Australia. So I remember that, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I can still remember the, the kind of, uh, well, horror or amazement that people here in Australia had when they heard about the level of that corruption. And, and obviously that played a role in people voting them out. So now that we have a new coalition, a new ruling coalition, um, at, which I understand is made up of the United Malays National Organization, do you say UMNO? Is that how, how you say it? Yes, that's right. It's pronounced as UMNO. UMNO. So UMNO, which is the old ruling party that that you know that there was where there was a high level of corruption. You've got the yes. Party Islam Malaysia or PAS, and then the pa- part. Sorry, yes. Pass. Pass, yeah, pass. And then um, the PBBM, or United Indigenous Party, which I think, isn't that the one that uh, Mahathir set up to defeat the old ruling party? Exactly. So the way to understand is that essentially we're going back to pre-2018. So Basatu and Pass, sorry, Basatu and Amno are very similar parties. So PPBM was a party established by Mahathir, and almost its entire leadership consists of ex-AMNO people. So essentially, AMNO and PPBM are very similar. But the real danger is the addition of this party called Party Islam Malaysia or PAS. Previously, they've never held power at the federal level. So now they're in power at the federal level. There's a lot of fear among the non-Muslim population in Malaysia that they will push for a lot more Islamic policies because for a very long time, in fact, from the day it was established, uh, one of the aims of the party is to turn Malaysia into an Islamic state. And I believe it has um, power or it's in power in a couple of provinces in Malaysia. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. It's currently in power in two states in Malaysia. But the problem is a lot of the Islamic policies they wanted to implement cannot be done because it conflicts with the federal constitution. And do you think it's like that might change now that they're in this alliance with UMNO? Well, I'm not sure that it will change immediately, but what I can tell you and your listeners is that they will try to change the constitution to make it more Islamic. So they'll probably try over the next year or two. Whether they'll succeed, we have to wait. Yes, and I'm wondering, is there any Saudi Arabia influence in that party to support Wahhabi Islam? Uh, right now, the issue of Wahhabi Islam is, is quite interesting. In Malaysia, there's actually quite a large uh, group of people who support Wahhabi Islam, but most of them are sort of uh, not on the surface. They're operating in the background. And part of the reason is because uh, Amno doesn't really buy into this Wahhabi thing. Uh, most of this Wahhabi thing is aligned to party Islam. So we have to wait to see uh, what happens to party Islam at the federal level. If they gain more and more power, I suspect the Wahhabi thing will surface. But right now, it's just below the surface. Right, but it's something, obviously, it's something to keep an eye on. Um, Absolutely. As we go forward. And what about the corruption trials? Because uh, I know Mahathir's government was uh, leading those trials. What will happen now? Right, so the general consensus in Kuala Lumpur is that the trial will probably go ahead. Uh, if Najib is found guilty... Uh, many expect the uh, the guilty verdict to be reversed during the appeal process. As you know, under the English system, uh, you have many, many stages of appeal. So many people expect the uh, guilty verdict to be reversed. There's also a slight chance that he might not be found uh, guilty in the current trial because they've just replaced the attorney general. Oh, I see. So, so the gains that were made, or the movement uh, to d- toward dealing with corruption, has just been stymied, or or might be. Yes, and that's the reason why I say we're going back to the future. Yes, indeed. And uh, just so, just looking at this change, and who are the big losers in all of this? Well, I think it's quite obvious that the biggest loser or the big losers will be the Chinese community. Because in 2018, almost 90% of the Chinese community voted for the opposition, which became the government. Uh, The second big loser, obviously, will be the non-Muslim population. And also what we might call uh, liberal or moderate Muslims, uh, Muslims who believe in a circular state. 
I think this will be the big losers because, as I mentioned earlier, the Islamic Party is now part of the federal government. Yes, and I guess if some of the laws come in that they would be looking at, women also would have their freedoms limited and people of diverse sexualities as well would not fare well in, 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 a, yeah, in that situation. Yes. Yes. In fact, if you look at uh, the policy pronouncement by past before they got into power, uh, a lot of their policies are actually directed at what they call uh, the deviant community. So this involves members of the LGBT community and also women. Yes. And I'm wondering, what about indigenous peoples in Malaysia? Uh, you know, the, the non-Malay, well, I'm not sure how you distinguish, but I mean, there are there are groups of indigenous peoples uh, within Malaysia that I think don't identify as part of the Malay community, but, but you may correct me on that. Sure. So in Malaysia, the indigenous community, people who are not Malays, uh, they are mostly found on eastern Malaysia, on the island of Borneo, in the states of Sabah and Sarawak. So they constitute about between 10 to 11% of the overall population. Uh, some of them are Muslim, but the overwhelming majority of them will either be uh, people who believe in traditional beliefs or they are part of the Christian community. Now, unfortunately, uh, they don't count in this game of political elites or game of thrones. So they'll probably be very unhappy what's happening in Kuala Lumpur. But at the same time, I think most of them will have a wait and see attitude. Yes. And so people have been in the street protesting. Do you have any idea who's been out there? Sure. Uh, most of the demonstrations are basically in Kuala Lumpur, in the Klan uh, Valley, the capital city. Uh, but again, uh, my, my take is that the demonstration will probably uh, uh, will not be a serious challenge to the government because the political power in Malaysia is, is vested in the rural areas. So the way it works in Malaysia is that uh, most of the electoral seats are in the rural areas. Uh, urban areas, although the population is much, much larger, uh, they have a very limited number of seats. So we have a problem in Malaysia where most of the power is held in the rural areas. And in the rural areas, the people are much more conservative. Yes. And how are the protesters being treated by the, the new government? Uh, right now, they're sort of taking the soft-soft approach. I think they know the world is watching, so they will not take any actions against the, the protesters. I think the key to this will be the, num the, the, the crowd number. If the crowd gets really, really big, then the government will probably feel threatened. But right now, the crowds are not very big. And as I mentioned, most of them are in the urban areas where the political power does not lie. So as long as uh, these are small demonstrations, mostly in the urban areas, I don't think the government will do anything. So what happens now? I mean, the, the government has to reconvene, I imagine, and there would be another election coming up. What's all that looking like? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, what will happen now is that Probably today or tomorrow, a new cabinet will be sworn in. Uh, parliament will sit in May, probably on the 18th of May. Uh, the opposition will probably try to pass a vote of non-confidence. The problem is that between now and May, which is like uh, six or eight weeks away, the current government or the new government will try to use its uh, advantage or its resources to uh, arrange defections from the other side. Uh, the way it works in Malaysia is that if you're not part of the uh, ruling party or not part of the government, it's very difficult to get government money to support your projects in your, your electorate. I think it's quite similar in Australia. You have to be part of the well, government. Well, we've certainly get, seen that recently, <laughs> yes. Professor Chin. Yes. 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 So, uh, so the the current government will, I guess, be. Um, I don't. I don't. I'm hesitate to use the bribes, but the word bribes, but you know, offering money or uh, support for people's projects if they come across and join yes. in. In Malaysia, we call that inducements or pocket money. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. <laughs> Yes. So how are you feeling right now, um, James Chin? What what are you feeling about the situation in Malaysia? I think for Malaysia, I think the tragedy is not only for the Malaysian people, but for the wider Islamic world, for the simple reason that Malaysia has always been seen uh, among Islamic countries as sort of a moderate Islamic countries, where elections are held regularly, where a lot of the key institutions work. 
So in this case, uh, everything sort of uh, did not work. We sort of went back without elections. We have what is known as backdoor government. People came together, formed a new coalition, and simply took over the government. So I think the tragedy is that the Malaysian experience uh, may be used by many of these, uh, shall we say, unsavory governments in the Islamic world to tell the people that, you know, you may vote us out, but you look at Malaysia, two years from now, we'll come back. All right. Well, I, I, I'm sure many of us will be looking, following the events in Malaysia closely, and I also imagine we'll be on the phone to you again before too long, Professor Chin. Thank you so much for coming on the 3RRR this morning. Thank you so much. Triple R. And uh, now I'm joined on the phone, on the line from Sydney, I think. I might haven't checked, but uh, with um, Dr. Madeline Taylor. And uh, Madeline is a, an academic fellow at the University of Sydney, specializing in energy and resources law. And she and her colleagues at the Sydney Environment Institute wrote a submission to NOPSEMA, which is the... Um, uh, our regulatory body governing offshore oil, among other things. And the submission was on the proposed Equinor drilling program and the Great Australian Bite. Now, I'm sure you've heard that Equinor has decided to pull out, and we're just trying to find uh, get a little more information about why that might have happened. So welcome to 3 R, Madeline. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on this morning. And uh, I'm just wondering, were you surprised when you heard about Equinor's decision to scrap plans to drill for oil in the Mm. bite? Yeah, and it's it's a great question. Um, Was I surprised? I was always hopeful that this would be the case. Um, Was I surprised? I actually was quite surprised. Um, But then again, if you look at the timeline of events, namely the fact that the Wilderness Society had just lodged a federal court challenge against Equinor and not SEMA for a failure to consult, essentially, during its exploration phase within its environment plan, and we look at our timeline of events, we can see that public pressure was just mounting and mounting against Equinor. So really, its decision to pull out actually hasn't surprised a lot of environmentalists and even the investment community because as Equinor has cited, its reasoning, of course, to pull out from the bite is due to commercial reasons. And really, that is the case. We have seen the dwindling of appetite by investment banks in Europe and even Equinor itself in investing in new frontier petroleum basins. And the reasons are they are extremely expensive um, to to operate. So when we're looking at ultra-deep water drilling, which is exactly what the Great Australian Bite is, it's 2.5 kilometres deep, and it's a completely untapped oil basin. So when you're drilling for the first time, the emissions that it takes to drill and to tap into a new frontier basin, like in the Arctic or the GAB, are absolutely catastrophic. And when we're trying to lower lower our carbon budget, as is Equinor, in fact, it's also declared it wants to uh, reduce its carbon footprint on all of its onshore and offshore oil and gas projects by 40%. So in order to do that, it would be very silly, commercially speaking, for them to go into the Great Australian Bite or a place like that where it is a frontier basin and there's going to be a huge amount of carbon emissions. I mean, it is amazing that they did, given that, that they proceeded with this project. And I understand Norway as well. I mean, and it's uh, Equinor is three quarters owned, I believe, or two thirds or yeah, yeah, two yeah, yeah two thirds right. by the Norwegian government, which is also wanting um, to, to change tack and not invest in mm. fossil fuels. So all of these, uh, you know, it's not only community pressure, I guess, but it's pressure from Norway as well. That's right, within its home country. And and Norway has really led the path in a clean energy transition in a lot of ways. Equinor itself is investing now more and more in things like offshore wind development. So why on earth would it go to um, a pristine environmental region such as our bite when we have community opposition but no commercial appetite as well to invest in this? Coupled with the fact that, of course, just recently we've had an absolute downturn in oil price over the weekend. And that's due to, you know, tensions with an OPEC led by Russia, but also due to COVID-19 and other sort of factors. So when we have a a high um, spike in oil, then, of course, we have more and more companies trying to invest in new frontier regions. But when we have a low price point, then any expensive, risky environmentally or socially, you know, insurmountable frontier basins 
like the bite, it would be commercially, there would be no appetite to drill in the bite. And we're hoping that this is the case now. We're hoping that because this is the third oil major to pull out of the bite, other, com- other companies, there are some smaller companies that are left, left in the bite now, there's three still, will actually take this as a signal and see, okay, so Equinor is really a leading energy company. They have done a lot of work. It took them two years yes. to environment plan. Yeah, I know. Yes, it was knocked back, but still they persisted, which is why the decision is such Mm. a surprise. But yeah, go. Um, and the other thing that's quite interesting, just from a commercial um, industry perspective, is the fact that in the oil and gas community, when we have a new uh, petroleum basin, typically what happen- happens is um, companies get together in form of a joint venture. At least two companies then are going in to drill because that's just more commercially prudent. You spread the risks between two companies, you share the costs. Um, you know, the costs it takes to actually get approval from the regulator, etc. And what's interesting about this case from a learning perspective for the energy industry is Equinor went at this alone. It bought out um, the remainder of the title from BP in 2017. So it was actually a sole title holder, which was really interesting from a commercial perspective because that is extremely risky and expensive. So Equinor invested all of this money in producing this two-year survey of its environment plan. It undertook a few consultation periods and things like that, and yet still it couldn't get up. So there is no way that an oil and gas company um, you know, that's smaller and maybe doesn't have the budget as Equinor because Equinor is, um, you know, obviously yes, well endowed. It certainly is, ho- yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully this signals that other smaller oil majors will not want to touch an area like the bite, which would be a huge win for all Australians, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, you know, especially g- given that uh, the federal government and the state government are both saying, yes, come in, we, we want you. We're disappointed mm. that Equinor has left. Mm. And what's interesting is there's that third tacit of the debate then, and that is around oil security and energy security. So the reason why the state and federal governments were in support of Equinor tapping into the bite is due to oil security. So Australia is currently not compliant with the International Energy Agency's stockpiling obligations. Ah, yes, I've heard this before. Yes, yes exactly. That you need mm. 90 days of oil stock. That's and right. That's for national yes. security reasons, and it's due to the 19th. 19- the you know, 37 oil embargo. So what happened around the 70s is most countries, including the states, the U.S., actually produced a petroleum stockholding reserve requirement. Okay, so the U.S. has got one of the largest stockholdings in the world of oil, 177 days to be exact. It has within its bunkers stored underground in Texas. So Australia, at the moment, we have about 53 days worth of oil, which is nowhere near enough. And so we have all these concerns. How are we going to get more oil? And the point is, even if we tapped into the bite and we started extracting more oil from that frontier basin, there is no regulatory requirement for the company, Equinor, to reserve any petroleum for the domestic market of Australia. Yes, and I noticed... Overseas, mm. yes. And and I noticed, I think someone was Australian Institute, someone did an analysis of, of the money that was to be made. And most of it, of course, went to Equinor. A small amount went to mm-hmm. South Australia and then in between to the federal government. So it sounds like you know, you're not getting extra oil to stock up and, and not. Not, we're not getting much money. So it certainly was, right. uh, you know, a, a, yeah, a, a project that had lots and lots of problems. I was really... I was really interested in uh, the submission that you wrote to NOPSEMA, the national regulator, uh, on the drilling for oil in the bite. And one of the things you referred to in the submission was the Montara oil spill that happened in the Timor Sea in 2009. What, What went wrong there? So it's a really interesting case on point. And Montara at the time didn't get a lot of media as well. So the the Australian community didn't really know about Montara. But then when we had Equinor coming into the bite, it actually resurfaced these problems. So in 2001, what happened there was it was actually to do with a lack of inspection by the previous regulatory regime. So when you go to drill for... Uh, Just excuse me just for a moment. Do you mean the Australian regulatory regime, the NOPSA? Yes, Australian, yes, yeah. correct, mm-hmm. yes. 
So previously, we had a situation where you would submit a well operations management plan. That's the second stage of oil exploration after the environment plan. It's called the ROMP, where you actually outline as a company, okay, this is what we're going to do to ensure we have safe drilling. So we're going to have a capping stack. Um, we're going to drill a well. This is going to be the concrete thickness, etc. And what happened here is we had a blowout due to a failure of the concrete and a pipe. So that blew out. It was 73 days of leaking uncontained, which was catastrophic. And now we actually have legal counts, uh, legal um, cases rather, being mounted by fishermen. That's right. Exactly. So it was devastating. So what happened after that is we had a whole regulatory reform in Australia, and that was the birth, hence, of Nopsema our independent regulator today, they were actually born out of this crisis because an inquiry there said, okay, we don't actually have a good regulatory system. We need an independent regulator that's not just the government, full of experts. Of course, it sounds really good on paper. But that problem of not actually inspecting a well after and during the workover phases, that is when you're constructing the well and you're comparing it to that WOMP, that well operations management plan, still does not happen in Australia. It yes, I mean, so... Like Norway, yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, they've replaced NOPSA with NOPZEMA to provide better mm-hmm. um, oversight. But it, if NOPZEMA approved um, Equinor's plan, it seems that it's not quite up to the mark either, or the regu- there's problems with the regulations. Yes, I think I think that's right. I think there's still a lot of problems within the regulation. So what I just mentioned there in terms of comparing the WAMP, that is the Well Operations Management Plan, to uh, the construction of a well itself to ensure or to really minimise the risk of a blowout like Montara still has not been done in the regulations, and that's a huge problem. There's also a problem, I think, with the regulator in clarifying what the actual radius is around consultation. So there was another problem within Equinor's plan, which was that it only consulted people within a 40-kilometre radius. A radius of radius of, of what? Sorry, the shoreline, did you the say? The shoreline. So from the shoreline back, 40 kilometres. I see, yes. Which is yes. not a large area when we're talking about a well that's drilled 370 kilometres out to sea. And very crucially, it didn't include and did not consult with 18 local communities that had very strong views on this, as well as our First Nations people, of which um, the Murning Nation is one, which holds extremely um, cultural significance to the southern right whale, and it was still not included within consultation. So that's what the federal court uh, challenge was actually all about by the Wilderness Society, was this failure to consult. And in Norway, again, it's interesting and it's quite ironic because Norway really has leading practices in these areas. And of course, Can I, sorry, just before Australia. we just before we talk about Norway's practices, can we go back? Is that uh, sure. the case that the Wilderness Society was going to mm-hmm. bring against Nopsema and Equinor, and, and particularly related to the lack of consultation, which they are required mm. to do? Is that still going ahead? So I can't speak for the Wilderness Society, and I'm I'm not sure. I haven't consulted with them, but I I highly doubt it will be bringing forward a case now, given that Equinor has exited the bite. Um, It could pursue perhaps legislative reform. I think that would probably be more strategic um, from Nopsema and more guidance from Nopsema and and trying to actually, I would imagine, trying to advocate the listing of the Great Australian Bite as a World Heritage Marine Area. That would probably be more... Mm-hmm. at this point. So tell me about um, about Nor- Norway's um, policies regarding drilling. You said they're much better than we have in Australia. Yes, for, for a number of reasons. Of course, they have the fitness to drill Norfolk standard, which is, as I've already mentioned, it's comparing that well operations plan to the construction. We also have some very interesting and very good environmental principles around the concept of stewardship. That is, that we are stewardships. We have a stewardship for the environment. Um, any sort of extraction of resources in Norway has to be for the benefit of society as a whole. You have to weigh up all the different cases, economic, environment, social, etc. So, very interestingly, within Norway, for example, we have a very strong fisheries industry, of course, in Norway, as we do within South Australia. And if we have an area that's deemed to have listed threatened species or fishery migration or um, breeding, then the government says there's no drilling in that area. 
So they basically say, okay, if you have fish spawning, then the fisheries industry takes precedence over our oil industry. So it's very interesting that we see this in the North Sea. Of course, subject to Australian law here, that would not be the case for Equinor. And we really advocated for the fact that, well, you know, if there was fish spawning, which of course there would be within the marine park of the Great Australian Bight, then that should be called for the government to seriously consider the economic damage to the fisheries industries that would be taking place. Because under the Commonwealth environmental laws, we have to take into account the restoration of marine species. So that means, okay, how are you going to be impacting the spawning and the breeding of the fish? And we already saw a lot of research being done by um, scientists and other experts in this area on even just the seismic drilling that was taking. Oh, sorry, yes, I've, I've seen, I've seen some of that place. research. Yeah. So, yeah. Madeline, unfortunately, we're going, we're running out of time, but I've really valued um, the insight you've provided this morning, and um, you know, and there's obviously there's lots more, but it is something that as Australians, we all need to be more aware of, I think, so that we can, uh, you know, lobby our governments, talk to governments about, uh, you know, what's needed and reforms that have to take place. But so thank you so much for making time this morning. I've really enjoyed our conversation. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I was just speaking with Madeline Taylor. And uh, she's an academic, a fellow at the University of Sydney, specialising in energy and natural resources law. And I think just listening to you, you can just see how much there is to know and understand. And if it is something that interests you, I'd highly recommend that you Google the Sydney Environment Institute and their submission to Nopzema. That's all you'd need to get it. You could find it. And it's, it's about 20 pages, maybe 21 pages long, fascinating read about, particularly one of the things they do is they compare what happened in the great, well, what might happen in the Great Australian Bight to the Gulf of Mexico and uh, and what went wrong there, which is all, you know, so interesting. And of course, the Montara oil spill, the Australia's biggest oil spill, and yet people really don't know that much about it. And the, the law, the case that she mentioned, the class action that Indonesian fishermen are taking uh, against Australia because of the damage to their business as a result of that spill. I think it, the the result is pending. It, it certainly started last year, and I think we may hear, um, it, you know, not too far distant future, what the result of that will be. So keep an eye on all those things. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. I don't know about you and uh, what you might do to hold the body and soul together and keep sane uh, amidst, you know, amidst it all. Um, some people do yoga. Some people go to Pilates classes. Some people, maybe you're a person who likes to work out in a gym. You might just like going for long walks and bushwalks. But for me, it's Tai Chi. And I've been a member of the Taoist Tai Chi Society of Australia for, for many years. Last month, I heard that one of our members, Margaret Bowman, had just turned 100. I was so excited and and really interested in doing a story about it, about her life and her Tai Chi practice. And Margaret kindly agreed uh, to to do that uh, very quickly. Actually, I didn't have to be encouraged. She was very um, welcoming. She invited me to her home for the interview. And uh, even before the interview, I knew that Margaret had had a fascinating life. I did a search on the internet, and uh, that turned up an article from The Age. I think it was published about six years ago. And the title was 94-Year-Old Margaret Bowman to Launch a Book on Colonial Artist George Gilbert. So I knew there'd be lots to talk about. But I began by asking Margaret Bowman when she was born city called Leeds, which is in Yorkshire, and my parents had only recently moved there when I was born, so that although they adopted Yorkshire as their home, I was the only one actually born in that 
County. So your birth year was 1920, and I associate 1920 with a, as a year of optimism. The war to end all wars had finished, and the League of Nations was established so there would never be war again. What was it like growing up there? Well, of course, I wasn't conscious of the grand climate of politics and society. My life was a very sheltered one. My father was a high school teacher and my mother in those days, married women didn't work outside the homes. It was a very quiet, protected, and I think rather progressive household. My father held progressive views, which he didn't trumpet, but which were very seriously held. I went to the local primary school and when it came time to go to high school, I took a scholarship exam and got a scholarship which took me to Beads Girls High School, which was a private school, and I think I had an excellent education. You graduated, and then did you work? Oh, yes. I buggered things up rather well because I'm not quite sure why, but I didn't like the Latin teacher and I gave up Latin, which in those days meant that the door to any arts degree in a university was closed to me. So my mother, a very practical lady, thought domestic science was a very good thing. And so I did a course to become a teacher of domestic science. I think it's been very useful. I can't say I enjoyed it. I can't say it was particularly stimulating. I think it was very good for the character and handy. I learned to cook. I learned to sew. The one thing I didn't learn to do was to crochet, and my daughter taught me how to crochet about six months ago, and it's really very soothing. What was your first job? I taught at Barnsley High School, and I taught domestic science. I got another job at Oxford High School, and at Oxford I met a young man who was doing his DPhil, and we got married, he was an academic, and we simply followed his career path. And he ended up coming to Australia as part of that? Yes, he, he was, I think, the first professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Melbourne. And you arrived in Melbourne, and you decided to pursue an academic life as well, I think. Well, it didn't quite work like that. I mean, we had quite a challenging uh, voyage. We had an even more challenging settling in. And then one day, John came home and said, you know, you can do a part-time degree. And I looked at him in you know, sort of bitter and twisted in a wifely fashion and said, in my spare time, I suppose, I've only got seven children and a husband and a household. Yes, I can do that. Then actually, he was much more foresighted than I was. And he said, well, look, if you devote yourself entirely to domestic life, the kids are going to be living very different lives. Why not give it a go? And so I did. And it worked. And so when you began your academic life, what areas did you pursue? Well, I started with French, and for entirely internal reasons for suiting the French department, they decided that all their classes would be on a Saturday morning, which meant I couldn't continue with French. So I, I continued with my second choice, which was politics, and it turned out that I could do it quite well. Our class was really quite distinguished. Michelle Grattan, who is a very senior journalist, was in our group, and one of the young men has turned out to be a judge on the Supreme Court, and there were academics, and that was great. At the end of it, I was offered a job at Monash, which was just opening. So I was part of this beginning team of academics in politics at Monash. So looking at some of your research, I noticed that you've done some work and written about uh, local government. Yes, absolutely. I was particularly interested in urban politics. I enjoyed enormously the very brief stint as it was called Urban Affairs Fellow, which was invented by Tom Uren, who was then Minister for Urban and Regional Development in the Whitlam government. 
That was really exciting and inspiring because uh, it was a sense that we were moving towards a better set of organisational arrangements and that worked well. And you did do a history of local government in Melbourne, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, it was good. There were all sorts of things and uh, it was very enjoyable. You and uh, Michelle Grattan collaborated on a book, Reformers Shaping Australian Society from the 1960s to the 1980s. How did it come about? I really can't remember. These things sort of develop and grow almost behind your back and then you find that you're engaged in a project and hopefully achieve the end purpose, which is to produce a text, which we did, and it was published. And I think I I tend to forget it once it's done. I understand that. You're so immersed at the time, but then you move on to the next project. That's right, you move on to the next thing. They're not planned. I mean, I have a, a feeling that the sort of Harvard Business School, the notion that you have goals and objectives and processes and all the rest of it, that's not life. Things emerge and opportunities are there, you maybe take them, you may take that road, you may take the other road, but it's much more fluid, much less tightly organised than the straight progression suggests. And I'm speaking with Dr. Margaret Bowman, an author, academic, French speaker, and much more, a historian born in 1920. She celebrated her 100th birthday in February this year, but as she'd be the first to say, I don't know what all the fuss is about from about age. I mean, you're still the same person. But once her children grew up and her husband retired, Margaret decided to do another PhD. And her daughters were very interested in working in the arts, or they were interested in the arts or working in the arts. So that's the direction she chose to keep up with them. So I did um, a PhD at the ANU in art history. It was focused on the um, uh, development of Versailles. I, I was able to go and uh, do some field work, which was not painful. Field work in Versailles, <laughs> wonderful. So I'm just going to fast forward now, Margaret, because in 2011, you received a creative fellowship from the State Library. Is that right? That's right. By this time, uh, sadly, my husband had died and I was adjusting to a new way of living. And my daughter said, you know, there's an organisation called the Athenaeum Library and they've got a book club. And you might be interested. So I said, well, I'll have a look. And I helped in the archives. And it turned out that George Alexander Gilbert was the secretary very early in the piece, landscape artist in the very early days of the settlement in what is now Victoria. As was the essential then, he had somehow or another keep body and soul together and a roof over his head. And so he worked as secretary of this organisation and his life I found very interesting, so I wrote a couple of articles. And then I happened to be reading The Age and it asked for submissions for this uh, creative fellowship at the State Library. Um, So I applied for it and I got it and it gave me the opportunity of, of writing the book, which was absolutely fascinating because it followed George not only here but in England, in Canada, both Montreal and Toronto, then New York and finally Hartford, Connecticut. What was he doing in Hartford, Connecticut? That's where he ended up, was that right? He ended up. And what attracted him there, do you think? Difficult to tell cause and effect, but he probably thought there were more opportunities in in Hartford because it was very advanced in, in the support for the arts. Early 1870s that he went to Hartford. By that time, there was private support by the local plutocrats. I suppose the arts have always been a way of cleansing your wealth. You could appear to be both distinguished and pure by supporting the arts. That's perhaps a bit cynical, but uh, anyway. So a fascinating topic. And and in the midst of all this, you found time to study languages. Uh, You started with French, as you said. I've kept up with the French because uh, the family has quite strong French connections. And you started doing Tai Chi. You joined the the Taoist Tai Chi Society here in Melbourne. 
That's right. Uh, it was, in those days, marvellously convenient because the local group met in the school uh, gym, which is just across the road from where I live. And not only have I maintained the contact, even though they've moved to Brunswick, but it has led to personal friendships as well as the enrichment of Tai Chi. Not that I'm any good at it, but it is something that I do value. So you've been doing Tai Chi for 16 years now. I reckon that'd be right. Time goes. I can't always manage to go because my friend who gives me a ride has a house in the country and she's not always there, but we have our, our little routine, which I think because these little routines become very important as you get older. It's a sort of cosy wrapping. And just uh, thinking back, I'm wondering if there's anything that gives you great joy when you think back over your life, any particular highlights. I can't ask you for one because I'm sure there'd be many. That's a very hard one. Uh, the overriding impression is that the really significant things, looking back, at the time you're not aware that they're significant. I mean, if I had not gone to a political meeting in Oxford, I would never have met my husband and my love would have been utterly different. At the time, it was just one of those things. And are there any regrets? Oh, many regrets. I've got all sorts of things that I know that I would have done better if I had my time over again. But all you can do is the best you can manage at the time, given the constraints and the fallibility and weakness and general lack of understanding. But, well, all you can do is sort of poddle on and do your best, I reckon. Not awfully profound, is it? I think it's totally (laughs) profound, (laughs) and I think it's true. But I was half expecting you to burst into Non, je ne regrette rien, Edith Piaf's. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, There are regrets, of course, there have to be, because we do get things sometimes dreadfully wrong, but to some extent you learn from it and to some extent you're able to repair the damage that you think you've done and always you have to remember that your understanding of what things happens is itself immensely fallible. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't be regretting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like Edith Piaf. Uh, and so with that, do you have any advice? Oh, God, no, I wouldn't dare to give advice. No, I've reached the stage now which is absolutely marvellous. I am the recipient of advice, and I'm very obedient. My dear daughters and son are very kindly, very well-intentioned, and I know they know better than I do. But there was some advice that Margaret was willing to provide for me, and that was how to get to the tram stop from her home. She and her little dog, Danny, walked me there. That's the bus, the tram stop. Oh, good. uh, Just be careful that it's got the city or Elizabeth Street. I think I'm right in saying it's a 59 or a 57. Okay. Uh, be sure that it does go to Elizabeth Street. I've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Bowman, author, historian, political scientist, academic, Tai Chi practitioner, French speaker. She celebrated her 100th birthday in February this year, born in 1920. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Well, I'm wondering have you got a pile of clothing at the back of your cupboard waiting to be mended? I didn't think I did, but as soon as I started thinking about it, I have now three things that I've pulled out that I'd like to do some work on. And uh, if you do, well, it turns out you're not alone, as we'll find out later. Aaron Lewis Fitzgerald has worked as a journalist, a communications manager, but her passion is mending. And by that I'm talking, she she did say she likes repairing everything, (laughs) but in particular, repairing and preserving clothing. Now, she's just written a book entitled Modern Mending, 
And she joined me in the studio last Wednesday to talk about what she hopes to achieve with the book and how it came about. And so first I just asked her, you know, well, well what inspired you to, to write such a book? I collect a lot of vintage mending books and they were all out of print and none of them had any reference to the clothes we actually wear today. So, you know, you'd get detailed tutorials on how to mend pantyhose or stockings, but no idea how to mend jeans or t-shirts or super thin machine knit jumpers that everyone has. And when I teach mending workshops, those are the kind of clothes that people bring in and those are the kind of clothes that they ask about. So I felt like someone needed to write this book and I had the skills to do it. So it was more of a calling than anything else. I felt compelled to do it. I also get the sense there's a bigger picture here. Like this book sits in the middle of the moment that we're in, whether it's environment, climate change. Is that how you felt? It is, but that's not how I first got into mending. I started sewing when I was nine. I begged my mom to teach me how to use the sewing machine. Uh, And for years, mending was really just a way of remaking the clothes that I'd already learned how to make. The environmental aspect of it came later. I think it's safe to say without sounding conceited that it's a very beautiful book. I was going to say, I (laughs) was going to absolutely say that it is a delight. Yes. The colors, the illustrations, the headings of different sections kind of draw you in. Yeah, but that's also a subversive trick. Oh. Yes. So uh, I've I've been been drawn in. (laughs) You have been trapped. Yes. I'm hoping that that's the aesthetics of it. The beautiful nature of the book is is also what's going to get other people interested in it. What do you hope to achieve with the book? Oh, good question. I would like as many people as possible mending their clothes. Men, women, children. I wrote it for eight-year-olds. Yes, I noticed the the dedication (laughs) to your nieces and nephews, which I thought was fabulous. So I don't want it to be a case where one person picks up the book and loves it, and then when their friends and family find out that they've got the book, then they start getting piles of things to mend for other people. I don't want that. I want everyone to to go, yeah, this is something I can actually do. The scale of the environmental problems that we've got right now are huge, but this is one empowering thing that I can do myself and actually make some kind of difference. How did you decide what to include in the book? Which techniques, which stitching... There's a very strong practical aspect of the book. My motto is whatever it takes. But it was through teaching. I've been teaching a seven-week mending course, and I've also taught individual workshops. I also have people contact me through Facebook and Instagram, and I get the same kind of messages over time. Everyone wants to know how to fix holes in the crotch of jeans. Everyone. Everyone. (laughs) And, And it's so funny, too, because they all think they're the only one with that problem. And it's easily the most common thing I get asked about. Everyone wants to know what to do about multiple moth holes. Everyone wants to know what to do about holes in kids' pants, for example. So I kind of just took the same structure as my course, so the main techniques that I teach in that course, and then factored in the questions that I get asked again and again. There were actually more techniques that I wanted to include in the book, but I didn't because I also approached it from a place of, yes, I want it to be comprehensive, but if I put too much in it, it kind of tips the balance and it maybe becomes overwhelming. I felt the detail in the book really reflects your teaching experience. So it's interesting you say that it's, it's grown out of that. It has tools of the trade, so you know what to go out and buy if you're a novice or starting again. And I really love the section, that part that said, what could go wrong? <laughs> I love that part too. What really surprised me when I started teaching mending and volunteering at repair cafes is people would say, how do I thread the needle? How do I knot the thread? And I've dealt with some very anxious people. And it really surprised me because, you know, I've been sewing since I was a kid. I didn't have that same experience. And I've also discovered that people can be really skilled in one area of mending or sewing or knitting, but have no idea how to do the others. So they can still be quite confident in some aspects, but then be really anxious when it comes to the others. So there's a little character in that section of the book. It's a little frog who's frowning, and I call him Anxious Frog. Uh He's my favorite. So Anxious Frog is there to help you. Yes. (laughs) 
to get you through those trouble spots when you go, oh, wait, this doesn't look like the pictures. And I think because I've taught for so long, I've seen just about everything that can go wrong. So it made it really helpful, all the students who had, you know, scary experiences to be able to turn that into something positive for everyone else. Yes, like the needle's gone through my thumb. I think (laughs) that was one of them. (laughs) Yes. There's also a lot of safety warnings that were inspired by students too. I'm I'm delighted that you mentioned threading the needle because that's probably where I stop. You know, if I can't get the needle threaded, that's the end of my ambition. So you have some hints for people. I had to use a magnifying glass to do some of the mending in the book. I thought of that. I wondered about magnifying glass. Yeah, Yeah. there are magnifying glasses. And I just got the craziest present for my birthday this year. I have, they're those funny glasses that dentists and surgeons wear. (laughs) And they've got the little magnifiers that you can flip over and they've got an LED light on them so I can darn late at night and see exactly what I'm doing. I know it's super nerdy, but that's my kind of fun. So So as specific techniques go, there are, you know, there are quite a few, I mean, including darning and felting or uh, patching. And the illustrations are terrific. And they really take you through, you know, how to actually do it. But you've also got some case studies of repairs you've done. Can you say a little bit about Large Marge? Large Marge originally was a character in a movie called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And she describes the worst accident I ever seen. And she's quite creepy and has a maniacal laugh. When I got this particular commission, the shirt was in such bad shape that all I could do was laugh and think of Large Marge in the movie. Uh, I think my response to the owner was, have you been mauled by a tiger? And? Um, No, no, no. (laughs) It was just lots of love over the years. And I think a lot of people are in that situation too. If you don't know what the solution to the problem is, if you don't know how to fix it, but you feel bad throwing it out, you just keep wearing it out until it's really, really bad and nearly rags. I don't know if anyone listening remembers, but Remo General Store had very popular shirts. They still make them called Stripey Things. So it was an original Remo Stripey Things shirt. Fallen apart at the shoulders, barely held together at the shoulders. It was coming apart at the seams. It had multiple holes in it. So I patched the entire thing up, and it was the most mega mending commission I've ever done. And it's funny because I just got an email this morning saying that Large Marge had been featured in an online magazine in Brazil. (laughs) So getting around. I know. The thing that I learned from Marge, because I didn't even know how I was going to fix that shirt. I knew parts of what I was going to do, but I didn't know the entire thing. It was really an experiment, as I like to say in the book. I learned that I now have a different threshold for what is mendable. Ah. Because I would have put Marge in the rag box. Okay. Yeah, because it would have just... Uh, It would have been heartbreaking for the owner. Yes. Yes. But now, because of Marge, now I even mend underwear. Oh, really? Yes, I've actually mended a few pairs of boxers and my own underwear. Most people I know wear out their clothes in the same spots every time. So that's underwear, that's socks, that's whatever it is. And if it's just that spot that's bad, it's not worth throwing out the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, so Marge really opened my eyes to what is savable, what's worth doing. And I learned so much from it too, and now... Everyone loves it, so... Yeah, and it's a case study in the book, which is great. And I learned new words. Ooh. This was very exciting, like the names of some of the stitches, like there's herringbone stitches and there's blanket stitches, and about some things that I might find in an op shop or an antique shop, like a darning mushroom. Yes. (laughs) I had never heard of a darning mushroom. Well, sometimes it looks like a toadstool, but uh, sometimes it can be natural wood, and it's shaped like a mushroom with a wooden handle and a cap-like top. And it's usually used for mending socks. So it kind of replicates the shape of your foot so you don't end up with a weird lumpy darn in your sock. But some people use them to mend jumpers and things as well because it keeps the fabric taut and it makes it easier to do your darning. I mentioned earlier conversations that emerged out of this book and that I had spoken to my sister and she told me that she thought our mum had used a, a wooden egg when she was darning the heels and socks. Yes, well, I just got my grandma's for Christmas. It's a darning egg. So it's the same thing as a mushroom, but it's slightly more slender, so it's probably better for darning toes as opposed to heels. And uh, I'm speaking with Aaron Lewis Fitzgerald, if if you have just tuned in. And, uh, you know, maybe you've got a, a darning egg or a darning mushroom 
lying around the house somewhere. I mean, you might want to just check it out. But uh, yes, it was great uh, chatting with her, and she'll be back in a moment. But first of all, a few, uh, just some messages. Picturesque Warburton will again be transformed into a colourful and lively hub of music, arts and cultural activity during the River Folk Festival 2020, featuring a stellar lineup of Australian and international artists including the Northern Folk, Ordinary Elephant, Sigani Weaver, Chaika, Above the Bit, Tin Man and much more. Friday March 13 to Sunday March 15 in Warburton in the Yarra Valley. For tickets and more festival information, check out theriverfolkfestival.com. Proudly sponsoring Triple R. The final night of the Summer Night Market at Queen Vic Market is coming up this Wednesday. Featuring an exclusive performance from Killing Heidi frontwoman and Aussie singer songwriter Ella Hooper, performing a lineup of hits and a few extra surprises. Plus all the usual night market stalls and delicious food and drink. Summer Night Market, final night, this Wednesday from 5pm. Visit thenightmarket.com.au for more info. Queen Vic Market, sponsoring Triple R. Well, as you'll know, I've been speaking with Erin Lewis Fitzgerald, and she's just written a book on mending called Modern Mending. And uh, we will hear from Erin again in a minute, but I was interested in finding out more about um, people's relationships with mending and repairing clothing. And uh, so on a Friday afternoon, which, which tends to be busy here at Triple R, I came in and wandered around with a mic just to see if uh, people had anything to say about it. And surprisingly, uh, people did and, and just took a break from whatever they were doing and had a few words for me. So, um, yeah, this, these are the kinds of things they said. I leave it. I live with it. I live with the torn clothing. I currently have a dress with a massive tear down the back that I continue to wear. I have a tendency to wear them way longer than I should till it's uh, not socially acceptable. No, take it to a tailor. You don't attempt it yourself? I haven't because generally a lot of the stuff that I would destroy over time, I don't have the machinery to fix. I usually fold it up and think about where my needle and thread is and if I can give it to my friend who can fix it. I would probably try and stitch it up if I could or, I don't know, maybe cry. The secret to mending repairs is safety pins. <laughs> so is this, this is true punk? Yeah. <laughs> I've got many shirts that I wear all the time that have a sneaky little safety pin holding a tear together. Regularly seem to tear holes in the pockets of my jeans with my keys, so they get a quick stitch up. I bought some pants from a second-hand shop and I discovered there was a secret burn in them that I had no idea where it came from, no idea. And just quickly went out to Sydney Road and bought a patch, patched up myself and it's good as new. It's a lost art mending. Well, this happened to me just the other night. I was giving a speech at a very special event and I was wearing my very cute, very sexy, adorable little black dress. And I bent over to collect my bag to walk out the door. And of course, right at that moment, I heard a little tear right on the bum line. So fortunately, it was all black and it wasn't a total disaster. I managed to get away with it. Where is that dress now? It's in the wardrobe and I'm trying to determine whether I can mend this myself. I think I'm up to the challenge. I don't know how to sew, which is a real controversial thing to admit, right? But my partner knows how to sew. So usually I lean to my partner and say, should we mend this? Is it fixable? Is it not? And I always remember my dad sewing and repairing clothes when I was a kid being like, you should learn this one day. I'm wondering, Erin, have you got any advice for these people who obviously care First of all, you don't need a sewing machine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, I hear that a lot. Um, almost all of the techniques in the book are to be done by hand. There's only one technique that involves a sewing machine. So that's the first thing. All of those things sound fixable. I like the safety pin idea too. Yeah. Vivian Westwood. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The information that you need to be able to mend something is not top secret. It doesn't require lots of training. It doesn't mean you had to learn it in school. Like it's actually very, very accessible for anyone out there. Is there some relaxed value in mending, do you think? It kind of goes both ways. There can also be swear words. So I do oh, address right. that in the book. I do talk a lot about ways to reduce 
swear words. If you like the swear words and getting yep. angry at your mending, you know, then that's fine too if you need an outlet for that. Some techniques definitely are very soothing and relaxing. Needle felting in particular, I've got a safety warning in the book because people have so much fun with that that they end up stabbing themselves <laughs> with the needle. They get so, too relaxed. Yeah, so it's not that the needle itself is dangerous. It's yeah. that it's too fun and they just lose yeah. all sense of what they're doing. Yeah, they yeah. just go into a kind of trance. Yes, like they meditative do. meditative yeah. space. Yeah. Well, good, good, you have the warning. Yeah, yeah a lot of safety warnings. I've yeah. seen. I've seen some things. You also have included some good advice and uh, for the professional mender, and I did notice that a number of people I spoke to at Tripler gave their mending to other people. And like I said, I don't want anyone to just become the magic mender who's going to solve everyone else's problems. But I also think there's no shame in giving it to a professional alterations person or a mender. You're still saving something from landfill, and it's really important to keep those businesses going and to support those local businesses. There's heaps. Definitely use them. And what kind of response have you had to the book? The thing that I was really proud of with the book is that I feel like it's maybe 10% bonkers. The editor didn't remove any of that. So it's got a personality. I very much want to be your cheerleader and hold your hand. And I think yeah. that's the thing that comes across. So this is actually like a really fun down-to-earth book. The reception has been really, really lovely. And it certainly is a, a fun book, and but down to earth as well. So I've been speaking with Aaron Lewis Fitzgerald, who's written the book Modern Mending. And uh, two things you didn't really know as you were listening to that. The first thing was that uh, you couldn't see. Well, no, the first thing is that when I went round at Triple R, I did say, you know, it's something that you really love, you know, something really special to you. You know, if it needs mending, what do you do? So that might be the reason one person said that. They might cry. I think you needed that kind of context. The other thing that you wouldn't be able to see, of course, was Erin's um, face as she listened to the different things that people said. And uh, it was really wonderful because she was incredibly focused and incredibly attentive and occasionally would smile. But one had the sense that there was nothing really new for her there, that she'd heard of a lot of it before. So look, get out your mending. Um, see what you can do. Don't get discouraged. And you might want to have a look at the book, whether you pick it up at a, at a bookshop or maybe the library's got it. But uh, I'm, I'm inspired, I need to say. I've got three things. I'll report back next time I'm on Triple R about how I've gone. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.